0: Welcome to the Celebration Church Tri-Cities Podcast. We are so grateful that you have chosen to spend part of your day with us. We are praying that God speaks to you through this message from our pastor, Robert Russell. For more information about our church, visit cctri.org. Enjoy the message. Let's pray together. Lord, you are worthy of everything every ounce of our being that we lay before you as a living sacrifice. And every prayer that is an incense unto you, that is a pleasing aroma. And Father, in these times we ask for supernatural discernment and wisdom and guidance to be people who are fulfilling the task that you have set before us that you're not surprised or confused by anything that we're encountering and that you are accomplishing great things in the midst of it. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use us to your glory individually and collectively as a body to spread your truth, to bring people unto you, to glorify your name. Amen. Well, I have been speaking now for quite a while about what I believe is the call of the Lord upon all of humanity to repent. Upon those who do not know him to surrender their lives, to confess their sin, repent of it and come to the place of accepting him. And if you have never done that, it is a simple thing, but it is an extraordinary thing to say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin and come into my life, make me a new creation in you. And likewise, he's calling his church to repent. In fact, I think perhaps that's the biggest call right now, because especially the church in this country has clearly, in my mind, loved the world more than we have loved God. And we have tried to twist and reshape ideas about God in order to make it comfortable for us to love the world while we are simultaneously acknowledging him. And in fact, I think what he wants for us to be are people who truly seek him with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind. To be real disciples Too often in this country, we are not making disciples, as is the call of the Great Commission. We are attracting followers who are immature. And sometimes they're following Christ, but sometimes they're merely following a man or a person. But he wants real disciples who are at the place of being willing to give up their lives as the original disciples did. Now, in talking about repentance, though, I think the Lord pointed out to me this week that some of us might have a misperception because everything that you take into your mind is filtered through what you already know and the experiences that you've had And for some people, you've had some experiences that might cause the word repent or repentance to have a negative impact upon you because you equate repentance with condemnation, that I'm being condemned by God, and unless I somehow improve my life, his condemnation is going to stay upon me. For example, I've known people, I've talked with them here at the church who for a long period in their life, they felt like that even though God had forgiven them, their sin before they accepted Christ was so great that they were always in a category that was inferior to the rest of the believers. And some of you have heard me mention that's how I felt when I first became a Christian for a long time. And you see, there's a sense of condemnation that is weighing upon a person when they have that perspective, that your idea of repentance is, yeah, I turn away from my sin, but I'm under condemnation from God. And yet, in the third chapter of John, in verses that are right after the well-known verse that said God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, just a couple verses later it says this, That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But that if you do not know him, you already stand condemned. And see, this is an important thing to understand. That because of original sin and the fact that we all have complied with it, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that we all deserve judgment from God. And we are by definition objects of his wrath that we are under condemnation until such time as we come to know him and some people say well I can't believe in a God who would condemn people and send them to hell well I've thought about that a lot and I cannot believe in a God who would condone evil you see that's the opposite of that Because the judgment is really a judgment and a condemnation brought upon ourselves because he makes the offer, the avenue by which you can come unto him. And it's clear and it's simple, it's not complex. It is in Christ and Christ alone. There is no other way unto the Father. We do not espouse universalism here at all because it is impossible to come to know God the Father except through the shed blood of Christ. That every human being needs the sacrifice of Christ, what's called the propitiation, the covering of Christ, that we would have His blessing, His forgiveness, in order that we would have a relationship with God the Father. And you see, because He has made this avenue, and because He is holy, and He is just and righteous. It is impossible for him to have fellowship with evil. It is impossible for him to condone it. Therefore, he must judge it. He must condemn that which is dark. And in fact, do we not want him to do so? Do we not want judgment upon evil? But at the same time, he has offered that there would be no condemnation to those who accept him, who receive his blessing so that you're free. Now, so when I'm saying that God is calling the church to repent, it is not that he is wanting to heap condemnation in any way whatsoever. It is because of his great love, because you have been forgiven, because the church is wayward in seeking after the world, that he is saying there is a much, much better way. See, look at the landscape of all of the Christians over the last few decades in this country who have been wayward from God and experimented with different aspects of the world and who have been wounded and damaged deeply. And many of you here could say, yes, I know. I've experienced it. And what God is saying is that those who come unto me, who seek me with all of their heart, their soul, and their mind, that they can walk in the joy of their salvation, that there is no condemnation unto them. But as they experiment with the world, as they continue to taste of the world, they are missing his best. And so he will send warnings. He will discipline those he loves. He will send judgment to call his people back to himself. And so this is where we were last week in the book of Joel, and I entitled it Return With All of Your Heart because this is the call of the prophet of Joel upon the people of Israel, and it is the same call that is going out today. In fact, if you participated in the return that went that took place yesterday in Washington or if you watched it online, I'm sure it's going to stay online. If you've missed it, go back and watch it. In fact, I would strongly encourage you to go back and watch what Jonathan Kahn spoke yesterday between 11 and 12. So you can fast forward and find it in there. But if there's anybody who has a perspective on what's going on in the world right now from a spiritual standpoint that is from the Lord, I believe it is him, and he's speaking truth very clearly and very boldly, and go and listen to it and find it. We'll probably post it on our website this week if you have trouble locating it. But the return was really largely quoting from the book of Joel because Joel was a prophet who spoke to the nation of Israel after it had divided into two different kingdoms, the northern and southern kingdom. And he was declaring to them the word of the Lord, which said, return to me, that is return to the Lord with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping and mourning and rend your heart. And I talked last week about this idea of rending your heart is, is tearing it open down to the most fundamental core and seeing what's there because God sees to that level in your heart. I believe that God sees the depth of our heart far better than we do. This is why he can say about one whose life does not look so great that he loves me with all of his heart and soul and mind and another who has the appearance of being a godly person but really has the facade of a Pharisee, he can say his heart is cold and away from me because he sees beyond any facade that you set up, he sees what's in your heart. And in talking about this idea of rending your heart, tearing it open, I was talking about how I believe right now in the country there are many people who are lamenting various things. They're lamenting the condition of what's going on in the world and, and they are concerned about their family or their personal situation. And if they have any inkling to seek God, and statistics tell us that about 80% of people in America pray at least somewhat regularly. Now, they may not be praying to a God they know, but in some form or another they pray. So there are a lot of people asking God to do things. And so they may be seeking God, but not seeking him personally, seeking him to do things for them. And I was saying last week, if that is our lament, if our only concern right now is to pray and seek God so that he will do things to improve our condition, that it is inadequate. That is not weeping and mourning and rending your heart. And maybe you're looking at the landscape of the country and you realize how far it has fallen in recent decades and, and how decadent we have become, how wicked we have become. And maybe you're saying, for that reason, I'm asking God to intervene, which is a justified reason. But if that is the reason alone, it is inadequate. And see, if, if all of your concerns are about things of this world, it is inadequate. And what I was saying last week, and I want to reemphasize in this week's teaching is that God is calling us to rend our heart, to recognize the rebellion, the wickedness, and the sin that is in the depths of our soul, and that it is not just about what's going on in the world, it is our darkness, our rebellion against him. That ultimately our sin is against him. What we need to rend our heart about and repent from is how much we have rejected him. Last week, I know when I was teaching, the Lord reminded me of something and I didn't want to share it. And then he reminded me again last night and I finally said I would. See, because I likened how we are treating God to a rebellious child, really a rebellious teen. One who has a good father, who cares about them, who tries to take care of them and provide for them, but we rebel against them, we disregard them, we disrespect them. And that's how we've been treating God. And what the Lord reminded me of is when I was about, I'm going to say, 17, I had been probably to a party with people I associated with from school that I thought were cool, even though we were foolish. And I'd been drinking. And I came home really late. And I really don't remember the circumstances, but My parents confronted me about something. And in my foolishness, I grabbed my father and threw him aside. Now, at that time, I was a lot stronger than he was. Or like my boys today are stronger than I am. And I didn't really realize what I had done because his head had hit the wall. He wasn't seriously hurt. He didn't have a concussion or something like that. But the next day, I saw this spot of blood on the wall that even though I didn't know the Lord and I was a rebellious teen, convicted me of how wicked my heart was. And then years later, the Lord reminded me of that and I wept deeply and regretted what I had done. Because I loved him deeply. He wasn't a perfect dad, but he was a good dad. And my rebellion, my wickedness, my sin, I took out against him. And you see, that is an example of what we have been doing for decades as children of God. In fact, what we have been doing is far worse. And even though I did that, my dad kept on loving me. And the last words we ever said to each other before he died was, I love you. And if an earthly father could be that way, imagine your heavenly father every time you throw him aside. And how much more he comes to you and says, I still love you. The song Reckless Love that Corey Asbury has sung, some have criticized him for writing that saying that God's love is not reckless. But if you understand his explanation of writing it, it's perfectly understandable. He was a young man far from the Lord, and he said, God came after me, that he was reckless and abandoned coming after me. And God's love is like that, that even though you would shun him and throw him aside, he would come after you. Amen. Because the book of Joel in the very next verse says return to the Lord for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger abounding in love that he relents from sending calamity and some people would say well why does he ever send calamity? Because of our waywardness that we basically require it in order that we would turn and repent. But it's not his desire. His desire is to send blessings. And so the people from the return and we have been joining with them the scripture says declare a holy fast and we've been encouraging you to fast and pray to deny yourself to seek the Lord that every one of us from the youngest to oldest would would say Lord we need you we are desperate for you and I've been thinking about this I've been thinking about a lot of things that are really needed in the day in which we live And I've tried to figure out human ingenuity about how to accomplish them, and I'm at a loss. In other words, how to bring about a revival in this nation, I can't begin to fathom how to accomplish it. It has to be an extraordinary work of the Spirit of the Lord. And yet, who could have imagined where we are in 2020? He is at work bringing people to a place of brokenness where they will either submit to him or harden their hearts against him. There is this critical choice that is before every one of us. And see, the call upon the church is the same call that Joel made to the people of Israel. It's to to repent, to declare a holy fast, to weep before him, that he would spare his people. You see, in the history of the world, literally, there have really been two countries that proclaimed God more than any other. The first is the nation of Israel, even unto this day. And they've been the most persecuted people for it. But the second is this nation that carried the, the banner of Christianity more firmly, especially in, in the recent centuries than any other history, uh, nation in the history of the world. And yet, in recent decades, we have defamed the name of Christ more than any other nation right now. And so is his judgment just upon us? Is it deserved? The answer is yes. But our call is, Lord, spare your people that we would humble ourselves. And I think particularly of the younger generations right now, so many of whom have not had adequate instruction in Christ who are simply trying to find an answer in this world by seeking after the things that are before them, not knowing that there is much deception and destruction within it. And they are the ones who most deeply and earnestly need a touch from the Spirit of the Lord. This is where we would pray, when you're praying, pray that the Spirit of the Lord would pour out upon young people, that they would see visions and dream dreams that would draw them to want to know him. The last part of what we talked about last week, we're still in last week's sermon, is what the whole return is about based on what's stated in Zechariah and other places in the scripture. That in that case, the forefathers in Israel had been people who had rebelled against God, and even though he had warned them, they did not turn. But the Lord said to them through the prophet Zechariah, Return to me, and I will return to you. Do not be like your forefathers. And I believe that's the call of the Lord right now to the people of this country. Return to him, and he will return to us. Now, where I want to go today is to continue to talk about this idea of rending your heart and recognizing that our repentance must be at the level of recognizing our offense against God himself. And to do so, I want to go to Psalm 51. And I'll go through part of it and then come back and explain it. The writer here says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Now notice he says, according to your love, not according to what I have accomplished or what I deserve, but according to your love. To have compassion to blot out my transgressions based on who you are, your compassion. To wash away all of my iniquity, to cleanse me. See, that's one of the reasons that God, I believe, ordained baptism as a symbol of washing away sin and being cleansed, being made new afresh. The writer goes on to say, For I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. For any of you who've gone down a wayward path and then something caused you to see the error of your ways and you repented for at least a season... Your sin was always before you. It was always on your mind. You couldn't get it away from it. It took a while for God's forgiveness to take root in your soul that you could leave it behind you. And that's what the writer here is saying. "Is my sin. It's right there in front of me. I can't get away from it. And then he makes this extraordinary statement. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, our sin most often involves an offense against somebody else. But here, the author says, My sin is against you, God, and you alone. And he says that because when you do sin against another person, you are sinning against God's creation. And essentially, by definition, your sin is against God. Every sin is against God. Every sin is a violation of the character and holiness of God. To lie is to do the opposite of the nature of God. It is a violation of his character. Everything that is stated in the Ten Commandments is to violate those, is to violate the character of God. Like where he says, have no other gods before me. When you have idolatry of anything in this world, you are saying that this is a God rather than him, which is by definition an offense against him, for he is the only God. And see, the, the writer goes on to say, then you are proved right when you speak, and when you, ju- you are justified when you judge. In other words, he's come to the place of recognizing his own sin, his own darkness, and he's saying, God, you are justified when you judge me. That's why I've said over and over, I know that I deserved death. That any of us, when we come to a recognition of the depth and darkness of our own sin, we, sh- we need to come to that place of recognizing his judgment against me is just. And if you think otherwise, you do not see the darkness of your own heart. He says, surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, there's some people that have a a false teaching about saying that somehow sex in this form is is not good or something. That is not at all what he's talking about. Sexual relations between a husband and wife, male and female, in the context of marriage, are blessed by the Lord. That's why the scripture says the marriage bed is undefiled because it is a blessing from the Lord, intended to be a blessing. So that's not at all what the writer here is talking about. He's saying, though, that he understands original sin. He may not have had the theology in his mind, but he's understanding that even from birth, there was something in me that rebelled against God. And those of you who've had little children, how precious and cute they are, it's shocking when they turn two or so and you realize something in there is not good. <laughs> is that not true? That what you thought was so cute so precious is one that says, no, no see, that's what the writer here is saying, that surely I was sinful from birth. Well, then we need to recognize who the writer was. It's King David after his sin with Bathsheba. And in fact, one commentator that I read recently said that Even though this is considered to be a psalm of David after his sin of Bathsheba, it must have been some other time because his sin was against many people, not against God alone. Well, that commentator did not understand that every sin is against God and really against him alone, even though it affects people. And so let's explore a little bit about this scenario. Many of you know it fairly well but it's about the mistakes that David made as king. And while there's a little uncertainty about the time frame, it appears to be earlier in his kingship and at a time when he was still strong and should have been about the business of God. It says in the springtime at the time when kings go off to war. David sent Joab, who was the commander, his the second, you might say, in command under the king. He sent Joab out with the king's men to battle. They went up against the Ammonites, and they were successful there. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, we can only speculate a little bit and read between the lines, which can be dangerous when you're studying the scripture, but... we don't want to interject too much, but it appears from what's said here that David somehow was doing what he should not have been doing. That he should have been with the king's army, not at home in his leisure while somebody else was doing his bidding, so to speak. And then what occurred thereafter was this. That one evening, he got up from his bed, walked around on the roof, and there from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now, again, we can only speculate. Why was she in a place where she could be seen? Maybe she was totally innocent. Maybe she was just there and didn't see anyone around, but David saw her. And it says that she was very beautiful, and David sent to find out who she was. And the person who responded said, well, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. At that moment, David should have stopped and thought, I should have nothing to do with her. But instead, he sent messengers to get her. Now, again, we can only speculate a little bit. About her situation, but imagine the king sent men to your home to get you. It's very unlikely she could have done anything to say no. In fact, some people writing about this say essentially David raped her because she he was in such a powerful position of authority and she was in such an inferior position that she, especially in that society where women had no real position of of strength or rights or anything of that nature, that she really was not in a position to say no. And so he took her and slept with her. The scripture records that the woman conceived and sent word to David. Of course, that would have taken some time period, a number of weeks. So for a while, he'd sinned, and maybe he was a little guilty about it, but his heart was hard enough, and his pride had arisen that maybe he thought it was not a big deal, but she said, I'm pregnant. Now, you know, interestingly enough, when you read that David is a man after God's own heart, and then you read what goes on in this scenario with Bathsheba, you think, those seem to be contradictory. And it's one of the things that gives evidence to the fact that the scriptures are true. Because if you're going to write a story about the heroes of the faith, you leave out the bad parts. You know, people in their autobiography want to write about mostly how successful I have been. But not too many people write about an an autobiography about the darkness and wickedness of their soul. Although some do. That's what St. Augustine did in his confessions. But you see, in this case, the scripture is recording the great king, the man after God's heart, who has done something very wicked. But the level of his wickedness multiplies extraordinarily. Because he first sends for Uriah, the, the husband of Bathsheba, and brings him back from the battle and says spend time with your wife thinking that he would cover up his sins by letting Uriah think that the child would be his. That in and of itself was wicked and dark, but David now is guilty and he's coming up with cunning human ways to cover his sins. And Uriah, though, was a man of integrity, and he said, how could I go and spend time with my wife when the men that I'm fighting with are out in the field facing battle? I will not do so. And so then the level of David's wickedness descended even further. He contrived a new plan to cover up his sin. This time he wrote a letter to Joab the commander, and he put the letter, he sent the letter with Uriah. And in the letter, it said to the commander, put Uriah at the front lines where the fighting is most fierce, then withdraw so that he will be killed. Now, think about that. How wicked that was. You see, he wrote an order that was the death sentence of Uriah, And he put the king's seal on it and said, Here, Uriah, take that to your commander. Take your death sentence to the one over you. Think how wicked that was. How dark that was. I won't go into any detail, but after I taught this last night, a person told me that they actually knew of a situation similar to this. Where a person had had an affair, a child was conceived, and they said about having the mistress murdered I mean a real story exactly like this you see in sexual sin our heart becomes the most hard and most deceived and will do the most dark things and so it was that Joab went into battle, under the orders of the king, put Uriah in a place that he probably would have never done so, probably wouldn't even have attacked that part of the city because he knew the strongest defenders were there. That they came out, they fought, and Uriah died. But not only did Uriah die, some of the men of David's army fell. In other words, by giving this wicked order for Uriah, that not only did it cost Uriah his life, but it cost other men their lives as well. The darkness of David's sin now has descended to a level. Now you could say well all sin is sin but the consequences of sin does vary. And he has descended to a level because of his pride. You see, he's the king thinking, I can do all of these things. I can take another man's wife. I can cover it up. I can even have a man killed. Now, David had been a warrior. He would killed people undoubtedly. He probably didn't regard life as valuably as he should. And so, David sinned against many. Now, remember in Psalm 51, he says, I've sinned against you, God, you alone. But if we look at the people that he's sinned against, he really sinned against the nation on two fronts. First, by not being with the army in the beginning, but then by all of his actions and doing this as a king, a leader sets a position and they can encourage people toward godliness or ungodliness. And so he has sinned against his own people, his own nation. And the higher your level of responsibility, the more the ramifications In other words, God may give you responsibility as the scripture talks about for tens or hundreds or thousands and so forth. So sometimes your responsibility is at a level where the ramifications are for a few people. And then sometimes for many people. But for some people it's for an enormous number of people. And we know with the kings of Israel that some of the kings led the entire nation back toward God. And some did just the opposite. So he sinned against the nation. Then he, he sinned against the messengers that he sent to get Bathsheba. See, think about it. In their job, they know it's wrong. And they're now having to do the dirty work, so to speak, of going and getting this woman because the king ordered them to do so. He sinned against them. He sinned against Bathsheba, most certainly, no matter how you look at it, that his wickedness was against her. He certainly sinned against Uriah, probably more than anyone in the whole scenario, even to the point of disregarding the value of the man's life. When you're willing to take the life of another human being because of your actions to cover up your sin, there's something very dark about that. And do you realize that is often what abortion is in this country? taking the life of another to cover up or vanquish to be done with my sin. There's a pastor down in, um, I think he's in Texas, who spoke at the Promise Keepers event recently. And he told about the scenario that he went to a Christian college. There he met a young woman and they dated for a while and she became pregnant. And while there, he pressured her to have an abortion. Now, mind you, he's a pastor now. He was a Christian then, but an immature Christian. He pressured her to have an abortion. He paid for it, and she did. And then, years later, he'd become a pastor. He confessed his sin, and he talks about it publicly. And he said that one time he was invited to go back to its Baylor University where he went and to speak at the chapel service there. And there he confessed his sin before all the students, what he had done. That he'd gotten this young woman pregnant and he would pressured her to have an abortion. And she did. He said sometime after that, he got a phone call from her that he hadn't talked to her in many years And uh, she said, I heard you told our story in the chapel at Baylor. He said, Oh, yes, I did, but I didn't use your name, didn't incriminate you in any way, and it wouldn't have affected you. And she said to him, Next time, why don't you tell the story without lying? And he was a little taken back because he thought he had told the story with truth. She said, why don't you tell the part about that I wanted to have the child, but you pressured me to have an abortion. That I wanted us to marry and stay together and raise the child, and you wanted something else. He said he was convicted to the core of his soul. While he hadn't lied by something he had said, but the way she described it, he had lied by something he had not said. And you see, he's very open about confessing the darkness of his sin now. And what he would say to you is that he was blinded. His heart was hard because of his sexual sin. And he had gone to a level of saying, covering up my sin and getting what I want is more important than the life of that child. And see, that's what was going on with King David. The same spirit. He sinned against Joab, the commander of the army. I mean, think about Joab. He's given an order that he surely does not want to carry out, that he knows it's going to cost people their lives, and he has to carry it out anyway. He sinned against, David sinned against all of those soldiers that had to go and fight in a way that Joab would have not ordered them to do so if it hadn't been for the king's order, and it cost them their lives. He sinned against his own son, as we're going to look at here in the next scripture, that the son born, that was conceived by Bathsheba, then God's judgment is upon David and the life of that son is taken. And some people say, well, how could a good God do that? Well, the son was taken and immediately goes to be with God. His blessing is eternal. God used him for a purpose of declaring how severe his judgment was going to be on David at this point. And he sinned against his own household. Because if you know this story, what happens in the generations to follow is that a spirit of death and a spirit of sexual immorality pervades the household of David. It comes back to haunt David. Even his own son wants to kill him at some point. You see, this is why I've said over and over, gentlemen, but also to mothers as well. When you personally sin, you throw open the door for something demonic to get a stronghold not only in you but in your household. This is why the scripture says the sins of the fathers are cast to the third and the fourth generation because when you make unwise choices, you open the door, it infiltrates you, but then it also affects the generations to come thereafter. And on the converse side, when you stand for righteousness, when you stand against the darkness to protect your household, not only physically but spiritually, that the blessing of the Lord is upon you for a thousand generations. And see, this is what's going on right now. See, in this nation now for decades, so many people, particularly men, have thrown open the door to allow darkness into their own home, to allow the demonic to reap destruction upon themselves and the people around them. And the consequence now is that the landscape of society is so broken and so wounded. And see, this is why it behooves every person who is a Christian to take a stand that no longer will I allow darkness into my home. And that we would take a stand for the nation to pray against the spirits of darkness that have authority over this nation, that they would be confused and bound. You see, I believe that every prayer that you utter is a stand against the darkness. Unless it's some selfish, foolish prayer. And every time that you worship God, it is a stand against the darkness. When I did a series on prayer here a couple years ago, I was saying that worship is a form of prayer. You are standing against the darkness when you worship God. And I believe what took place in Washington yesterday with the return, all these people coming together in repentance and in prayer and worship is standing against the darkness in a place where the darkness has such strong influence. But you see, what David did was just throw open the door. He, it was like he opened the floodgates and said, Darkness, come into my home. How foolish. With one choice. But you realize it really wasn't one choice. You see, because I used to say to my sons, if you wait until you get into a situation where you are tempted to decide what you will do, you will fail. But if you are building a life with him and walking with him, that is with Christ, and you are consistent in your choices, when you face great temptation, you will turn away from them. What had happened with David is gradually, somehow, his pride had grown. And his perspective that he could handle it without God had come to a place that his lust overcame him. His pride overcame him. And then it got deeper and darker. And so the consequences of his sin are recorded in 2 Samuel. There the prophet Nathan is sent to him and basically tells a parable about a person who was very wealthy taking from someone who had very little. And the way he tells the story, it makes David really angry. And then Nathan says, you are the person. And it penetrated David right to the heart. Undoubtedly, the Spirit of the Lord had given the prophet the wisdom in how to say it to David, that it had penetrated right to his heart. You see, the darkness of what he had done was there, but he had tried to hide it in his coldness and in his hardness. But it was there, it was deep in his heart. And God, if David wouldn't rend his own heart, God would do it for him. Let me tell you, he will do that for you too, by the way. You might think that you can hide your sin for a long period of time, but the scripture says, be sure your sin will find you out. That eventually, if you do not confess, he will rend your heart for you. And sometimes he will expose it very, very publicly because he loves you. Because he knows it's going to take this public disgrace for you to come to the place of repenting from what's going on. And so then Nathan says to, Uriah, uh, to David, he says, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? See, he's saying your sin was against God. You struck down Uriah the Hittite. He didn't say that you had Joab do it for you. He said you did it. And you took his wife. He's saying how wicked you are that you murdered another man so you could get his wife. How wicked. How wicked. He says, you killed him by the sword. He said, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Which if you know the whole scenario, that's exactly what happened. There was a lot of death inside the house. See, because of his sin regarding death, this spirit of death had authority in his household. That's why I say, that any generation can be the generation that stops a spiritual stronghold. If it gained authority through your grandfather, God can call you to be the one who stands against it. If you have already opened the door and allowed it into your household, now is the time to repent and confess so that you can shut the door. And how do you do that? You, well, first, you repent and confess before God and ask his forgiveness, but then everybody affected by it, you go to them and ask their forgiveness. If it's your own children have been wounded by your actions, you go to them and ask for forgiveness. And that's how you start closing the door and walking in holiness. And then the prophet said to him, he said, you have, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. He recognized what he had done. He confessed what he had done. But then Nathan said, your sin's taken away. God forgives you. But God had given you a lofty position And you have not honored him in it. And the cost to you is going to be very great. This is why the scripture says, to whom much is given, much is required. It's why the scripture says that those who teach, not many should hold themselves out to be teachers because they will be judged more strictly. That if you are given a position, then you are held to a high level of responsibility for it. He says, your sin is taken away. You will not die. But because of what you have done, That the son born to you will die. Do you know what? I am certain that David probably wishes that the prophet had said the son will live but you will die. Because think of the weight of the magnitude of his sin that now is right before him. That he's going to have to live with the rest of his days. It would have been easier to die. But God in his wisdom said, no, not you, the son. Don't you think from that day forward, David walked with a level of brokenness and humility that he had never walked in before? And see, David is the one who wrote Psalm 51. The earlier part about I have sinned against you and you alone. Or where he said, my sin is always before me. You bet his sin was always before him. Because he had come to this place of conviction. You see, now this, the reason I'm talking about this is because what I said last week, that we must come to a place of recognizing our sin is against God, our offense is against him as an individual, as a church across the country, and as a nation, our offense is against God. And even though, see, look at the magnitude, the multitude of people that David sinned against. There were many, many people he sinned against. Dozens. And yet David said, my sin is against you and you alone. He knew that at the core, at the depth, what he had done violated the character and nature of a loving God. And that's why he wrote, these words that continue in Psalm 51. He says, cleanse me and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. You can bet there'd been no joy and no gladness in his heart for a long period of time. He said, let the bones you have crushed. Now in reality, his bones feel crushed, but it's not God who did it. It's David who did it to himself. He said hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart. He says don't cast me from your presence. See that what he is stating there is a prayer. And do you realize that is a prayer that exactly describes how we should be praying for the nation? Blot out our iniquity. Creating us new pure hearts. Don't take your spirit from us. He said restore to me the joy of my salvation. And grant a willing spirit. And notice what he says. He says save me from blood guilt. Blood guilt is probably the worst possible guilt. It's where you are responsible for the death of another. And see, it weighs heavy upon him. Do you realize the blood guilt of over 60 million aborted children is upon this nation? You know, when Cain killed Abel, the Lord said what? That the blood of your brother cries out. And the weight of that is upon the nation in which you and I live. Now, whenever I bring that subject up, I have to remind, though, that if you as a woman have experienced abortion or you as a man were responsible for one, God forgives and takes it completely away. But for a nation that is unrepentant and continuing in this, the blood guilt is increasing. David said, you do not delight in sacrifices or I would bring them to you. He said, the sacrifice of God is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. In our pride as a nation for several decades... We have not walked in humility. And look at where it's gotten us. What God is calling us to, is to be at a broken and contrite people. Who would realize that our sin is against God and God alone. My sin, even though it affected other people, is against him. Every Christian who has violated any of the commandments of God, our sin is against him. The wickedness of our nation is a sin against him. It's true for the entire world. That's why I'm absolutely certain we're at a place of critical importance. A juncture that will determine the future in an enormous way. And for people my age, maybe the future is not radically affected, but for my children and their children and children yet to be born. Our concern should be deep. For that little baby that cried out earlier, that's who we need to repent for. Call upon the Lord. Louis, if you're around somewhere, come back. That's what I'm going to ask you to do. I am going to ask you to get on your knees if you are physically able. If not, that's fine. Just in your spirit be upon your knees. You can kneel at your seat. You can kneel down here, whatever it is. But I'm asking you to intercede for the nation. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that it blessed you in some way. Don't forget to visit our website at cctri.org and make sure that you send us your prayer requests at office at cctri.org. We pray that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him.